Let me, uh, okay, we're on. Would you uh, grab your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 3 with me? We're going to be looking at chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 1 to 6. And here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving and preserving your word. Would you enable us to heed your call to the church? Remind us that our chief end is to bring you glory and honor. And that is to hallow your great name. Help us to lay aside our pride and our reputation and remember our only boast is in the cross. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I... I wanted to share a somewhat self-incriminating story this morning. You know, it's my first time speaking in front of you all, so I figured, ah, it's probably good for you to get to know me a little bit. And so many of you know now that before we came here to Sand Harbor, we were in Cambodia. And lo and behold, when you adjust to another culture, there's this thing called culture shock. And it happened to me quite a bit, but the worst one, or maybe not the worst one, but one of them that frequently happened to me was these lovely little things called icebreakers. Before every meeting, class, get together, whatever, they would do icebreakers, and I would sit there going, can we just get to business? Like, I just want to get to business, and it would drive me nuts. And so there it was, Cambodians wanted to get to know each other, and I wanted to get to business, so I had to put my priorities back straight. So this morning, we're not going to do an icebreaker. I, I just want you to know, even though Andrew's out of town, he still did say Presbyterians don't play games during worship, so I don't want to get fired, so that's a good thing. But what I do want you to do is this. I want you to just raise your hand with me. I want you to raise your hand just right in front of you, and I want you to just grab your ear. Just grab your ear. Anybody not have an ear? Okay, good. Well, you just made this verse applicable to you. 
Verse 6 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If only it were that easy. If only it were that easy. But in fact, that is so important this morning because it's the Spirit speaking. You see, Sardis would have said, Hey, I've got an ear. I can hear. But they couldn't at all. And so we need spiritual hearing to hear this morning what the church says to Sardis. I'm going to adjust the mic here. Because that is what is at stake this morning. God puts the x-ray machine against Sardis and finds them wanting because spiritually they were dead. Spiritually, they weren't there. And what was it that they weren't there? They had forgotten the foundation and destination of their faith. That's what these six verses are all about. Jesus calls his church to remember the foundation and destination of our faith. And if I can steal a very cheesy evangelical Christian Christmas line, we need to keep Christ in Christianity. That's the whole purpose. A Christless Christianity is no Christianity at all. So where did the, did the church of Sardis err? Where did they go wrong? How did they get to the place of removing or ignoring the substance of their faith? Well, look at verse 1. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I mean, imagine with me for a second. See the reaction of the church when they hear this. You know, they get this great thing. Jesus says, I know your works. The church, yes! Strong start. We heard those four other churches last week. We're on a strong start. You have the reputation of being alive. Killing it. Here we go. Then Jesus drops the mic. You're dead. Comatose. Done. Nothing. Red line. How? How? Their jaws dropped in disbelief. And honestly, this this verse sends shivers down my spine because of what it is calling out in church life. It's calling out the fact that there's not a day that goes by where we can take a day off of being Christian. There isn't a day that goes by that we don't need Christ. If Christ is not our present reality, then we are dead. For as Christians, there isn't a, oh yeah, I remember at camp, I raised my hand, I made this great profession of faith, I had tears coming down my eyes, we sang Kumbaya after, and that was it. That was my moment. But it isn't simply the profession of faith that makes us Christian. It is rather the possession of faith. What is scarier about this accusation, too, is that it's not just past, but it could have been present things that they could gain reputation off, that they could go, look, 
look, we've got this going on. We look good. Our reputation is fine. But in fact, their present appearances showed nothing but a sham. Think of all the various things a church can build a reputation on. If that is what is relied upon, it is a false reliance. It is form, not substance. It's name only, but it's lacking the essence of the thing. I think Jesus called this whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And it's it's a really scary thing when the New Testament puts on the flesh of the Pharisees, isn't it? But it's something they do. We don't, right? It's something they do. I don't do that. But we need to listen this morning. The church in Sardis, however, needed to replicate Paul's ministry agenda to the Corinthians when he said he knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the substance. And the church in Sardis erred because they loved not, they didn't love people too much. It's that they loved Christ too little. And they flipped the greatest commandment. Think about it. It's when we reorder the greatest commandment that everything falls out of place. It is when we love our neighbor as ourselves first, and then with whatever is left over that we love God with, it is then that everything suffers. But if we properly obey Jesus and love God first, the second command is fortified and executed properly. Everything comes out of our love for God. And if we miss that, we have not love for our neighbors. Doesn't mean we can't be decent to neighbors, but you don't truly love them. So I want to ask us this morning, what reputation, if any, are we holding on to but Christ. Maybe if, if we can make it personal here for a second, maybe it's reformed doctrine. That Maybe that's the reputation we've been looking for. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it's right or else I wouldn't be here. But doctrine is always pointing somewhere. Doctrine is always leading you to something. And reformed doctrine is trying to properly teach you about God. But if you stop with the paper and never get to the substance, you've missed the point. You don't actually like the substance. You don't like and treasure God for who he is. Or maybe it's our liturgy. Maybe maybe we like the cycle of how Sunday feels. And again, don't get me wrong. I, I think it's important how we worship. I think the Bible has prescription for how we worship. But worship is pointing us to something. Worship is getting our hearts to honor and praise God for who he is. And if it doesn't move us to do that, we're just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. And we don't want to do stuff 
The answer, then, is not a formula. It's, in fact, back in the first verse. It's Jesus holding the Spirit. He says, I have the seven spirits of God. It is the third person of the Trinity that is going to affect and answer and remedy this problem. It is the Spirit who applies the salvation one at Calvary. It is the Spirit who illumines and brings to light God's word in our heart. It is the Spirit who convicts us of sin. It is the Spirit who gives us life. It is the Spirit who is sent into our hearts to teach us to pray and to become like the Son. It is the Spirit who works in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Nothing of the Christian experience can be done apart from him. And this is Paul's whole point in the letter to the Galatians when they want to go back to circumcision in the law. He's saying, you have the Spirit writing the law on your heart. This is the whole Old Testament hope. This is what everything was leading to, the age of the Spirit. And now it has dawned. And so if I can write a little disclaimer right here, I, when we get into the commands and the imperatives that we're about to get to, it would be a fatal mistake to suggest we just need to try harder and do better. That, that's not what Jesus is commanding them. What Jesus is commanding them is coming right before him and throwing everything they have at his feet. Because he wants to give the Spirit to the church. It is that they lack. The commands are important, but the Spirit is going to empower them to do this. We cannot do it on our own. The other thing that this verse teaches about a false reputation and a potential dead work is even church attendance. Now, before you pick up stones, let me explain what I mean. The six verses that are before us this morning reinforce this idea of the visible, invisible church. And it's a rather hard concept to get around. So let me explain just a little bit. We see that the church's rebuke is, you're dead, wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. If not, Christ himself is going to come against them. His church. Now, how does that work? Well, there's also, in verse 4, those who haven't soiled their garments. They walk with Jesus, and they are presently worthy. How do the two coexist? Well, there's a visible and invisible church simultaneously gathering. You can go to church simply to check off the box of a spiritual to-do and never actually partake of the substance. You can go through the motions here. That's terrifying. That, that's terrifying. But thankfully, that's not where God leaves us. God calls us to more. And we have to remember that even when we attend church, 
We need to tune in. We need to spiritually check in. Do we listen? Are we here to do what I came here to do? Or am I just warming a pew? And during COVID, here's a good example. During COVID, I, I remember calling my mom. Remember the early days of COVID where everybody was still figuring things out? It was still a little scary. Well, I called my grandma. We're just checking up and checking in. And I remember talking to her. What do you miss? What's going on in life? Blah, blah, blah. Well, I was anticipating her to say how much she missed church. She was a pastor's wife. She'd gone to church for over like 40, 50 years. I mean, just somebody that lived and breathed church. One of those people. I love my grandma, but she was one of them. Anyway, instead of an immediate, yes, I miss church, it was a kind of, yes, maybe, yes, I do. She missed the aspect of gathering, the godliness, the the aspect that's so important to our Christian life. But what she said afterwards really stunned me. She said, well, now I go to church more than ever. I said, Grandma, what do you mean? She would go to five services on Sunday morning. She's like, yeah, I just wake up at like seven, brew my coffee, and I just start with church on the East Coast and like make my way through the whole, you know, continental U.S., what she liked the substance she liked the substance she liked her savior and don't hear me wrong i'm not suggesting that you need to go to five services now but do you like the substance do you like god is he your all in all is that why you came this morning Well, that's what's wrong with the church. That's the diagnosis they get. What do they need to do? There's there's this helpful prescription that Jesus gives right after that. The church of Sardis is given five commands. And five commands that are helpful because they all work together. First, they need to wake up. Two, they need to strengthen what remains. Three, they need to remember what they received and heard. Four, they need to keep it. They need to act in accordance with it. And five, they need to repent. What's important here with these five commands, these five imperatives, is it's not like a pick and choose sort of thing. Oh, okay, I can strengthen and remember. I don't have to wake up or keep it. They they all go together. They have to be in alignment with each other. Starting with the most obvious, though, dead people need to wake up, right? Or in other words, they need to become spiritually aware of their state. They need to become watchful. That's, I think, the correct idea behind it. Watch, watch, Get, get awake, be watchful. The theologian Greg Beale says this command suggests that the readers have become lethargic about the radical demands of their faith in the midst of a pagan culture. The question then becomes, what were they to become awake to? 
what were they supposed to be watchful for? I think it becomes clear in the next verse and then in chapter 16. The next verse says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. I don't know about you, but that sounds like second coming language. And then chapter 16 reads, and this is between the sixth bowl of judgment and the seventh, and I'll leave that to Andrew to clarify for us, but... Verse 15 reads, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Okay, repeated thing here. But blessed is the one who stays awake or remains watchful, keeping his garments on that he might not go naked about and be seen exposed. So in this instance, the wicked have not only stained their clothes, they've lost them. But the blessing then is on those who stay awake. Staying watchful for Christ's return. This is what they are to remain watchful for. And why is that important? Why is everything through the lens of the second coming for which they are to remain watchful for? Well, I just listened to this thing the other night where a well-respected pastor in the 90s, uh, you know, prophesied out for the date. And, you know, we're still here, so he was wrong. But if you think about it, what happens every time somebody calls a date? Well, those who buy into it, they do something. They get ready. They prepare themselves. They actually act like it's going to happen. And that's why the New Testament, that's why Jesus says, you have to be ready every day. They actually are doing stuff consistent with the date. They are prepared. It orients them. It tells them how to act. And that's our marker. The second coming is our bearing. It's our guide in life. It's how we navigate the Christian life. Without it, we're aimless. Without it, okay, Christ died, he rose again, we have new life, but... But what? No, he's coming again. He's actually going to redeem and set right the world. He's going to return. We won't stay here forever. And that is our hope. That is the blessed hope of the Christian. So when was the last time you woke up and thought, Didn't happen. Didn't happen during the night. But maybe today I'm going to hear the trumpet call. Maybe today Jesus is going to break through the skies and make everything right. Maybe today are we orienting our lives around that day? Is everything we're focused on gearing up for the moment where history ends and everything is put back in order, where we get to see the king riding on a cloud of heaven, all of the pain taken away, all of the injustice of the world set right. 
It has to be our bearing. But it also comes with two things, content and context. See, if you don't have that as your bearing, there's probably good reason why. It comes with judgment. It comes with judgment. Because one of the things you're saying by saying he's coming again is Jesus really is the Lord of the universe. Jesus really is Lord. And you will account to him and him alone, not your buddy Caesar. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus will testify and prove himself to be Lord. And you're going to have to pay account to him. All of your deeds, all of your wickedness. And so I think the church in Sardis held back and didn't want to hold to this because there came with it. Ooh, yeah. Sorry, Jim. Caesar isn't Lord. And our is our bearing off of the second coming because we don't want to tell people of the impending judgment. Thanks, Nick. The other thing that I want to point out is the context that puts us in. See, if we keep our bearing and if we keep watchful and strengthen what remains, it gives us the context in which we find ourselves. You don't become watchful because we're in neutral territory. You don't become watchful when, when it's peacetime. You don't strengthen what remains when there's enemies around. Well, in fact, you become watchful, you strengthen what remains, is because the fight is still going on. The victorious battle has been decidedly won. But the second coming has yet to dawn. We are still in the midst of a battle. And there's three things that we need to be watchful for, but they become watchful to us when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, when we watch for that great day. The world, the flesh, the devil, all of them just we put in their proper place because their eyes are fixed on Christ. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. When we watch Christ, we're watchful of the enemy. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So then let us keep awake. Let us be watchful and be sober. We have to watch ourselves on what we allow the world to tell us. And so again, when we watch Christ, we watch the world. Now, every person in Sardis would have understood this analogy when Christ tells them to do this. This 
city was beautiful. It was like shot out of the mountain. There was this beautiful fortification. It was nearly impenetrable. Like all you had to do was the most obvious task of any military. Just stay awake. Don't screw up. Like the, it's, it's easy. Don't screw up. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to fire their weapons. They just had to not screw up. Well, the fortified city sat on nearly 1,500-foot cliffs. It wasn't real cliffs, but it, pretty much. I mean, the city is awesome. But twice, twice in their history, they fell asleep. To the Persians and to the Greeks, they fell asleep. And they were taken overnight. And just like that, they lost everything because they weren't watchful. We need to be careful. We need to keep our eyes fixed on the prize. He is coming back. He will judge the world. Are you ready? What if he came back right now? Are you ready? Do you want him to come back right now? Or do you need, is there something holding it back? Are you hesitant? Because the judge of the universe says, Behold, I am coming. Now, the other thing, as, Paul, as Jesus continues to warn them and commend them, they need to do, is they need to keep their eyes on the second coming, but they also need to remember that you don't have a second coming without the first Remember, he says, what you received and heard. And what is it that they received and heard? It's the gospel in all of its fullness. They don't take it. They don't make it. They receive it. And Paul's summary of it in 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, now in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. You see, Article 1 of the Gospel for Paul is Christ died for our sins. And we were just talking in Bible study this week. Jesus, as he moves and he ministers and he teaches and he does even miracles, it always has two effects. It either brings people in or it drives people away. And the second you start with Article 1 of the Gospel, it's going to offend people. And so it, after looking at these six verses for this past week, I'm convinced what Sardis loved was this phrase, preach the Gospel always, but when you have to, use words. They were good at that. 
In fact, make sure we never have to use words is probably what they would say. People know we love them. Christ died for our sins. We owed a debt. The world owes a debt. And Christ came to take care of that. But it's good news. That's where they got wrong. They got wrong and they have forgotten that it was good news to them. It actually did something in their lives. It moved them from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of light. They had been changed. They had experienced grace. It is still true. And by withholding that, they weren't extending God's gracious mercy to the city. And so, have we forgotten what we received and what we have heard? The gospel is good news, but it is offensive. It is offensive. And so, all of the commands that Jesus is giving the church kind of come to this head with repentance. And this repentance is not only in confession, but it's in action. When they put all of these things in order, they are repenting and acknowledging Jesus' assessment of the church is actually right. He's right. We are wrong. And we need him. And so the last thing I want to point out is Jesus' prognosis for the church. And it's the beauty and majesty and goodness of God. He's going to give them a dire warning. And the dire warning is this. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And essentially, if you're not going to keep the second coming as your main focus, your driving effort, everything you orient yourself around, it, it's going to cut both ways. Whether you like it or not, it's coming. So repent. So fall down before Christ. But the beauty of God is this. Verse 4. There are currently, presently, those who are walking in white, for they are worthy. And verse 5 is the great guarantee. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before my angels. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch that? The great throne room of God, when you get there, the Ancient of Days, on his glorious throne, whom no one has ever seen, the horde and multitude of angels behind him that cannot be numbered, Jesus is going to stand beside you and to the Father declare your name. 
not his own. Right? This is the great Christian amazement. He's not going to say, another representative, Jesus Christ. And then God's going to pardon us and move on. Jesus is going to stand there when we get there and say, your name. Because his righteousness is in your account. Look at the saints in verse 4. They are worthy. It's their present status. It's their condition right now. Worthiness in Revelation is only used in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the Father and of the Son. It is not the inherent value of some in Sardis. It is the the value that God has given him because of the cross. And that will be our reality on that great day. Our names will never be erased from his ledger because it is in the book of life. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to hear your name? Because God has established your name with his righteousness. And that's why this church erred. That's why this church is called to wake up. Is because the God who gives his righteousness who paid for your penalty, says, wake up, wake up. Look, you have some in your midst who are worthy right now. That is their status. And when I come again, I will confess your name before the Father. That is the great hope we have. And so I ask, are you tuned in? Are you hearing what the Spirit is wanting to say to this church? So if you turn in your bulletin with me to the end of page 8, and we're going to continue with our tradition through the book of Revelation with our responsive conclusion. If you would... Say along with me in bold. He who testifies to these things say, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.